Hello and welcome to the November 2021 edition of No Diagnostic Required, a monthly look at what's happening in the C++ community. With me, Phil Nash, my co-host, Anastasia Kazakova. How are you doing this month, Anastasia? Um, good, good. Trying to recover from the releases time. So mm-hmm. playing with some advanced calendars. <laughs> what about you? I'm sure we'll get to those releases a bit later. Uh, I've been not, yeah. not so much playing with advent calendars as maybe event calendars as uh, <laughs> events start to pick up again. And I've uh, just come back from one in person, actually. So uh, it's been a bit, bit, a bit busy lately. But uh, yeah, I think it's been busy for everyone as we get to the end of the year. Uh, everything's um, all happening before it dies down. So hoping for a bit of a rest soon. I'm sure you are too. Yeah, yeah. Same for me. So... Uh, we've got quite a quite a few things to get through again this month, so let's get started by talking about Afro Dwyer's post. Uh, you put this one in, so do you want to tell us about um, these three reasons for passing to string view by value? Yeah, that's actually a nice post by Afro. So he's discussing these three performance benefits of uh, passing by value over passing by um, reference or const reference. And actually, the thing is that while it's kind of obvious for you know, cheap types like integer or you have, you know, a pair of integers or you have a char pointer. So it might be not that maybe obvious for some, for some other types, which are actually behaves the same like string view, which is uh, the point for the discussion um, here in the blog post. So the performance benefits are kind of, yeah, obvious and uh, like uh, stated here, like pass by value eliminates a load from memory for trivial types that are passed in registers and not via the stack. So pass by reference works uh, via the addresses. So the caller has to actually spill it onto the stack. So pass by value can sometimes eliminate the need for a stack frame in the caller. And pass by value provides caller with a you know greater number of optimization options while the reference to the unknown object forces the compiler to behave more conservatively, probably. Um, like the performance cost of like, you know, making a copy outweighs, uh, if actually the performance cost of making a copy outweighs all of these free benefits, then, you know, uh, that's good to, uh, to, to know about it. There was an interesting follow-up to this blog post, mm. which actually took my note, was that the, there was a discussion under the blog post, which was raised in response to this blog post, that... Um, for Microsoft X uh, 8664 um, EBI, uh, it does not pass to string view in registers. So that's not always true, actually. So uh, the reasons are who was listen, uh, listed there is not always the case. But for the rest, it's, yeah, that's true. And that's good reasons to pass it by value. But there are cases when that, that's not true and the string view is not passed by registers. So actually there is like, you know, some exceptions to the case. So um, yeah, that was a nice follow-up. And I guess that's always what I appreciate under the order of is the, you know, all these discussions with the corner cases. And that's actually not a real corner case. It's just the regular, you know, uh, platform and the regular architecture you might be working with. Mm. So that actually captured my um, yeah attention. So what do you think about it, Phil? Yeah, I, I was quite surprised about that not being passed in registers. And uh, it's just the, the x64 version of the Microsoft compiler, he said. Uh, but yeah, still quite surprising. But um, he, he does make the point that it's still preferable to pass by value, even if you know that's going to be your your target. Uh, that, that is one of the things I like about a lot of Arthur's posts. I know we feature them a lot. Because he does often <laughs> pick things that seem obvious. Or, yeah, I know that. And then he goes much deeper. And you think, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. That's what I appreciate him either. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Always a good deep dive. Um, okay. So moving quickly on, so we've got a lot to get through. So uh, Vector of Ball uh, talks about Catch 2 version 3. Yeah, um, you probably have heard about this framework for unit testing. Well, I, I've heard of it. Uh, I've, I've actually not really had any involvement in the development of the version 3. And, and the big push with version three, which is relevant to this post, is that rather than being a single header framework, as it's always been from the start, it is now being put out into separate CPP files. You can build it as a library. And that makes a lot of sense in, in, in some ways. Uh, a lot of people have expressed concern 
myself included, that that actually may hurt adoption because that's been one of its major selling points, that it's so simple just to drop in a header file. But there's some nuances and, and things you've got to get right the other way as well. So it's not quite as clear cut as that. But regardless of that, Vector of Ball's position here is, well, let's make that as simple as possible. So he's talking about using these tools, DDS and PMM. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, that's actually, that's a very short, but very practical blog yeah. post, which demonstrated a nice scheme of how you can use the uh, libraries like Catch to version 3 with CMake uh, via these, you know, two nice abbreviations. So uh, DDS is a drop that simple and PMM, it's not my job position, <laughs> is the package manager manager. It's actually just a simple CMake, which you can include and then... Uh, it just, you know, the CMake script, it manages external packaging tools. So right now it supports like the Conan and VC package and also DDS as shown here. And it automatically downloads, installs and controls package managers from within your CMake project. And that's actually what the offer is doing here. So you're actually using this Catch2 and DDS via this, you know, simple uh, PMM CMake script. And so like you're done in just a couple of lines. So that's as simple as just, you know, including a catch uh, header as it was before when it was a header um, header only framework. So yeah, I think that works. And uh, moreover, I was started thinking about like if we can utilize maybe the PMM somehow in the IDEs because it looks like a nice way to cover all package managers at once. That's just a rough word. <laughs> That's not a promise. <laughs> I haven't even discussed that with the team, but it looks promising. I mean, like if it could work with uh, all the known package managers, maybe that's what we need, not, you know, just supporting all of them uh, one by one, but using something more general. And that's not just because I like the abbreviation here. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the big problem I had with this post was I wasn't sure whether to go with a, a yo dog joke. Uh, how do you like package <laughs> managers? So we've made a package manager for your package managers. Or yeah. uh, just go simply with, um, you know, who manages the package managers. So however those will do, but um, it, it all gets a bit meta. But um, yeah, if, if it solves the problem, then why not? Yeah, but you know, maybe the PMM as a package manager manager is fine for CMake, which is a meta build system. <laughs> so they're kind of on the same level. <laughs> okay, well, let's look at something that's um, a bit less ugly now. Uh, <laughs> new book, Beautiful C++. What do you want to tell us about this one? Yeah, first of all, that's a beautiful book and mm. it's about beautiful C++ and I really like it. So I've heard about it uh, like before when it was still in progress from Bjarne and Herb while I was discussing the C++ core guidelines with them. And they told me like, oh, and by the way, you know, the guy and Kate, they're writing a book about the core guidelines. And I think these are the, you know, awesome candidates for that kind of book. So Kate actually had a great talk at CppCon several years ago about 10 core guidelines you can't miss. So it was kind of expanded to 30 <laughs> by Guy, and he brought more examples and some detailed explanations uh, to the very practical use cases on how you, you actually should use them. So, and there are like a very nice um, forward and afterward by uh, Bjarne and Herb about the book and uh, what they think about it. So what's the emphasis there, how you can find the benefits out of it. And I think that that's a very good practical start if you would really like to start with the C++ core guidelines. And that's the thing you can't miss these days. So that's a very um, good, um, you know, collection of recipes, but you need to know how to apply them. You need to know how to work with them and looking at these, you know, nice examples in the book. So it's not already published, so it's available for the pre-order and it's planned for the end of December. So maybe that's, you know, a nice present for yourself <laughs> for the new year or for your friend, a colleague. So uh, the only thing, you know, I'm feeling um, sad about is that I'm not going to read it in paper probably and my Kindle Paperwhite probably won't show me <laughs> this beautiful C++ cover. Um, but apart from that, I think the book is great and it should be great. I'm pretty much sure about that. And I really like, uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Kate's talk and Guy's talk. So yeah. I'm pretty much sure that the combination of uh, those people together uh, in a book should be, you know, an awesome, um, like, masterpiece. So, yeah, waiting for it impatiently. What about you? I think it's this is definitely one to get in uh, in hardcover uh, rather than uh, like, on the Kindle. <laughs> 
can uh, just discover it. <laughs> and, and I'm not sure when people talk about the Beautiful C++ book, whether they mean it's a book about Beautiful C++ or a, a C++ book that happens to be beautiful. It could be both. But I definitely agree that, I mean, the core guidelines themselves are, are something that every C++ developer should be aware of. And of course, as we both know, there are some good tools out there to help you along the way. Um, but yeah, get, just getting to know the the ones that are really going to help you to make your code clean, safe and fast, that is really going to be a big investment of, of time that's going to be worthwhile. So uh, having a book that's also easy on the eyes to, to look at will help yeah, you. Yeah, there, that, that's true. I also actually like looking at it from the perspective of a very, you know, practical aspect. We were recently discussing the core guidelines with the Richard Principles Plus team, trying to somehow rethink them to understand what was behind the core guidelines. And we wrote a huge document. We sent it to the core guidelines editors for, for the comments because we're looking for the feedback. And I think the book is something we would be very interested in, like reading and looking for, you know, another opinion on the core guidelines at least. Yeah. Yeah. And just to be clear, I've um I've not actually looked into the book. I don't know even which core guidelines they're highlighting. But like you, I, I trust Kate and, and Guy to do an excellent job of, <laughs> yeah. of picking out the right ones. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and we we definitely need it given what's going into the standards. So let's have a quick look at our our standards news. This month, I'm, I'm trying to keep it brief. I, know I always say this, but <laughs> that we tend to run long. But uh, try to keep it brief, brief this month by just concentrating on the new or revised proposals that relate to contracts. Uh, we've mentioned them quite a few times recently. We're sort of quite keen to see them get into. Um, be nice if they get into C plus plus twenty three. Well, we may miss that opportunity now, but uh, we definitely have an interest in it. So, the one we've been looking at quite a lot is um, minimal contract support, either no eval or eval and a boot. Uh, now, this one has had a um, a little bit of a revision. Partly it's noted that, um, uh, that there is a way you can get infinite recursion if you're checking features that uh, are specified between two objects in terms of each other. So, you know, one has a contract about another, and that one has a contract back about the first one. Uh, there is actually a way to get an infinite recursion in there that just hasn't really been discussed before. So that's been added to the paper. And then there's a, a new section on the, the the syntax between the attribute-like syntax that's been discussed up until now in this in this paper and non-attribute alternatives. So uh, we, we did look at a, a new proposal that we'll look at again, actually, proposing a non-attribute-based syntax. And now that's been acknowledged in, in this paper as well. And then finally, there's uh, the, the difference between uh, two models for the semantics of uh, elision of contract checking. And what that means is if you, if you specify a contract uh, at one point, and then maybe you call onto another function, pass in the same arguments, and it has its own contract that's basically identical, then if it's actually checking them, it would seem a bit wasteful to recheck the same contract again and again. So the compiler is allowed to note that and say, well, I'm not going to check it again because I've already checked it. So it's going to rely on the second check, which is fine if there's no side effects. But if there are side effects, which which is allowed, uh, according to this proposal at least, then that all has to be taken into account. So there's different models for how to handle that that are all uh, covered in the paper. So it's, um, it's given it pretty good coverage. Uh, so on the one hand, it's nice to see this uh, filling out so nicely. On, on the other hand, it's uh, it's a shame it's filling out so nicely quite so late before uh, we, we, you know, we've run out of time to get it into C++23. But um, as I said, I think that's looking unlikely at this stage anyway. So let, let's get this right and uh, make sure we, we cover all of those pretty important details that, um, that are really emerging at this point, I think. Do you have any, any thoughts on that, Anastasia? Yeah, I actually mentioned two things which I really felt a little bit scary about. First is the recursion, because every time we start thinking about this kind of recursions in this kind of features, I feel scared. Um, mm -hmm. uh, that's probably the same level of scariness which I have about, you know, memory allocation at compile time and all these things, which makes me worried about where we're going with the C++. And yeah, the contract elision and the side effects story also sounds a little bit scary because like 
we are struggling with the side effects in C++ for a while, I guess. So having them in contracts, isn't it too dangerous? Should we just, you know, stop it, <laughs> make it illegal? Is there any practical use case for having the side effects uh, in the contracts? There are. It, it gets subtle. It, it's covered in the paper uh, and it's been discussed a lot. Okay. There, there are people that are against it that would prefer to say no no side effects allowed. I think the main thing, if I remember rightly, the main um, the reason for allowing it is that it's just so difficult to say that it's not allowed. How do you guarantee that? <laughs> How do you specify that? Um, you can do, but then you limit other things. So, you know, think about uh, Consexpra. Uh, at okay. least until recently, Consexpra also has that guarantee that, that there are no side effects. But um, that's at the cost of, of limiting certain other things. And in fact, now, Consexpra can actually have side effects uh, if, you're, if you're dealing with memory and that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, by removing those, those limitations, you remove that guarantee as well. So I think that's the main reason. But I think there were some actual use cases as well. Maybe something to do with logging or something like that. But okay. um, yeah, it's mostly just because it's so difficult to specify it without it. Uh, and we have a precedent for this sort of thing where we we want to treat it as if there are no side effects, but also allow them, which is the um, uh, constructor division. So if you have um, uh, copy constructors that look like they're being called, but because of something like um, uh, return value optimization, they're not then, you know, we should expect that to happen, that the constructor would expect to get called a dozen. So if there's any side effects there, then obviously they're not going to occur. And I, I've been bitten by that in, in catch, actually. <laughs> it was written in such a way that because every compiler I'd ever used uh, elided the, the copy constructor, I sort of wrote around it as if <laughs> it wasn't there. And then the one day it hit a, a case where it did actually kick in and everything went wrong. But... <laughs> Yeah, 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 like, I I just mean, because when you have something in the language which you can use, you definitely can abuse it. I mean, mm. like, you can use it in a wrong way. Yeah. So the side effects, that's the biggest story for me in, in this direction. So you can yeah. use them smartly and nicely, and they can serve some good goal, and they can really help you, but you can also abuse them greatly. And so the contracts themselves, not, not the probably, you know, is this feature in terms of building it right now and allowing all those things looks a little bit scary to me, but yeah, maybe it's fine. Maybe there is a whole bunch of use cases for that. Yeah. So moving on, but still talking about contracts. Again, the other paper that we, we talked about last month as well, uh, closure-based syntax for contracts. So this was the alternate syntax where rather than looking like attributes, it looks like lambdas instead. We talked about that in, in some depth last month. There's a new revision this month. It's actually quite a big revision, taken on board lots of the feedback that the authors have uh, received. A lot of it's actually removing things, like uh, removing uh, some of the syntaxes that uh, didn't seem to be getting a lot of support. It's really just um, you know, polishing off the paper, getting it into, into good shape as it actually hits people uh, discussing it, the process that most people's papers go through. Uh, and it shows that it's actually getting a lot of interest and a lot of attention. So that's, that's a good sign. It's also clarified uh, the, the purpose that it's actually, the, the reason for selecting this particular syntax is it opens up possibilities for future extension that might otherwise have been closed off. And I think we discussed that a bit last month, but that's a, an explicit intent of the of the paper. And then uh, we have the, uh, the predicate illusion that we mentioned in context of the, the previous paper. Uh, has a a big section in here. And specifically, one of the things it differentiates itself with is that elision has to be all or nothing. So either a whole expression is elided or or it's not elided, whereas the, the other paper, I believe, allows sub-expressions to be elided. So if you've got a compound expression, only part of it that's repeating can be, can be removed. So I think this is just a, about simplifying the expectations because you can always expand on that later but but those are the main things that i noted at least that were different in this paper uh, and then lots of little details as well that's mostly just you know seeing it go through the go through the process and um continuing to to get some attention don't know if you have anything else to say about that um not really a command on the paper itself but i'm just looking at it as a good progress with the contracts because like discussing the syntax means that we're more or less agree on the major goal <laughs> hopefully 
Well, um, yeah, <laughs> that would be nice. Yeah, I know. Still, there are details, but yeah. um, and lots of you know discussions. I understand that, but it's good that we are actually at this point, probably. But there is a paper we'll discuss at a moment that may actually say more about that. But before we get there, since we um, this, this paper we've just been talking about is about the alternate syntax, the closure-based syntax. There's now a new paper which specifically is discussing the attribute-like syntax. So just drilling into that a bit more and the the discussion around, you know, why that might be a choice, how it differs from actual attributes and why that could actually be a good thing. But it also drills into uh, a few misunderstood definitions. For example, what it means to be ignorable, which is something that often comes up in conversation, particularly when you when presented with the attribute-like syntax, because there's this idea that Oh, if it's an attribute, then it must be ignorable. Um, and we don't like contracts having this attribute-like syntax because it's not ignorable. Uh, and then other people are saying, but we like this, like it having this syntax because it's ignorable. And it's clear that people have different understanding of what ignorable actually means. And I think it mostly comes down to whether the uh, the code within the square brackets actually has to be parsed in the case that it's being ignored. So does ignorable mean it doesn't even have to compile, or does it mean it has to be legal code that has to compile and parse, but it's just not evaluated? So it just clarifies some of the terminology around that. Also points out that the standard itself is a little bit unclear on this, and that that's probably worth clearing up just in its own right. So again, it's digging a little bit into the weeds, but this is all, these are all important weeds when it comes to the discussion of, of contracts. It turns out this is what we've really been discovering. So. Uh, good that we're getting this sorted out um, and the discussions are being had. But um, yeah, it's just, uh, just more uh, housekeeping, really, I think. Uh, anything to say on that one? Um, yeah, like uh, to me, ignorable is something more or less clear, but maybe I'm wrong here. So having the code, code which doesn't parse correctly looks like a nightmare. <laughs> Who would need that? But mm-hmm. like maybe again, I'm like missing the cases. So, but yeah, it's interesting discussions where we're running into that. Maybe we'll find something, um, something new inside our C++ language with all of this. <laughs> I'm not sure, like, how the contracts are actually affecting the other papers. If we, for example, uh, dig for some new issues in the current language features with the contracts, it looks like this might happen. <laughs> yeah, but something you mentioned just now uh, about uh, ignorable and and whether actually being unparsable is useful. It reminds me of another article, which uh, I was going to put in to our list, but I was trying to keep it pared down, so I, I didn't. But maybe I'll throw it into the notes. Um, new blog post by uh, Barry Revzin about um, conditional compilation and the different models for that. And uh, one of the points he makes is that there are cases where you don't want things to be... I forget the specific terms now. You have to be really precise with these things. But he gives the example of uh, say a, a smart pointer where you want to have a, a dereference operator, but you don't want the dereference operator if your smart pointer is on a, a void type uh, because it will, it's going to be illegal. Now, if you use concepts to try to disable the, uh, the dereferencing operator, it will make it not visible, but it still has to compile. And so you still get a compiler error in that case. So you can't actually use that technique. So you have to use something else that doesn't even present it to the compiler at a certain level. Uh, so that's where I um, struggle to remember the specific terminology. But there are these subtle differences in what that really means that we really need to be precise about. And that, that's the problem, really. You know, just being precise about what we mean. And this is one of those cases where that precision is just not obvious from the wording. So that, that's that's really what we're clearing up. It's not necessarily... Uh, about you know anything goes it's it's about exactly how much does go i think <laughs> okay okay um okay so the last one to look at that's related to contracts but it's actually not contracts and that's kind of the point portable assumptions so one of the things that was in contracts in c++20 uh, was this idea of an assumption and an assumption is a hint to the compiler that it, it can make assumptions because this thing will always be true or never be true. And then the compiler can optimize around that. So it's really useful. 
And when it was proposed, people said, oh, that should be in contracts. So it was rolled in. And that was one of the things that created uh, tensions and problems because not everyone agreed with that. And it caused things like the you know, time travel, undefined behavior, causing things that seem to be unrelated <laughs> happening. All, all those fun things that we've talked about in the past, many of those are related to assumptions being part of the contracts specification. So they're not in the new contracts papers, which gives freedom for this paper too to come back. And in fact, it was being discussed in, in Prague in early 2020, so before everything started to shut down, the last physical standards meeting. It was doing pretty well, very well received. So uh, Timon, who has <laughs> just joined JetBrains as it happens, went off and, and responded to all of the, um, yeah, the, the, the questions and, and commentary in the, in the meeting, put together the next version that was almost sort of greenlit to, to sail through from that point of the a little, little bit of dissent, but not very much. In a very good position. Then the pandemic happened. Everything got um, off track. So this paper has only just really been revived again. It's just been dusted off and uh, tweaked a bit and updated to accommodate things that may have happened in the meantime. Um, and been presented back again. It's gone through EWG and that they are saying now it's ready for polling. Uh, hopefully then gone to CWG it's a core wording group for, for a wording review, with the aim of actually getting in front of plenary where the, the final vote happens before the C++23 cutoff. So this may be a part of what was in C++20 contracts, effectively, that does make it into C++23, which on its own is great news because this is a really useful feature, as we said. But it also means that the other contract papers are sort of free from having to, to worry about that even in, in the future, potentially. It's already in the standard in another form. So if it's like a it's like a double dose of good news that this is um moving forwards at this point. So anything any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm just uh like sitting here wondering if it's indeed better to have as a separate or as part of a contract. So what are the you know drawbacks? What are the pros and cons of this decision? I mean, like if contracts were planning it for a while. I think they have some coherent decision for it, but like I, 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 I'm not sure. Like if the contracts themselves are now something coherent, uh, with all the papers we're still discussing around the contracts. But uh, is it really better to pass this uh, separately, or maybe it was better to I don't know still make it a part of a contract? So what are the reasons to have it uh, separate apart from the fact like that it go seems to go first. So there's there's not agreement that it belongs as part of contracts. There are okay. strong voices both ways, I think, is, is about mm -hmm. as much as I can say. Um, <laughs> but there there are reasons for that as well. Uh, it really depends on where, you, where you're coming from, what your view of what contracts are in the first place. And that, that was the, the whole thing that got thrown up in the air. And or let's go back and try to establish what we mean by contracts. And it turns out that the... The only commonality that we sort of get across all parties doesn't include assumptions as part of that. It, you can certainly see why they were considered to be, to be part of it, because you're sort of using the same sort of terminology, like um, this is something that should never happen. And if this is something that should never happen, you can optimize around it. Mm -hmm. So you, you can see that. But uh, they're also slightly different, and there are consequences to mixing them. And, and that's where the some of these time travel things come in. I'm trying to think of a, a good example at the top of my head now, but uh, I, I remember there were things where you can have something that uh, a contract that's ignored, but treated by the compiler as a path for optimization, then says, "Well, because this can never happen, then the thing just before it that we do actually check can never happen either." And so it actually removes a check, a runtime check. So your contracts become weaker because of the, the assumption being made by the, uh, by the compiler. I'm not doing that justice. I think we talked about it sometime earlier this year in a little bit more mm -hmm. detail. Uh, but um, you, you definitely get the, these really weird problems. Uh, and that's just one of the con uh, consequences of it. There have been others that have been put forward that, um, yeah, if you're not thinking about this the right way, it just does not work as you would expect. So I think... I'm coming around to this idea that it does make sense to have them separate. Uh, and I think that's 
the only way we're going to be able to get these features into the language anyway is, is by keeping them separate. At, at worst, it just means there's going to be a little bit more repetition where you're going to say, here's a contract to say this won't happen, and here's an assumption based on that not happening. Uh, we have those sort of repetitions in other parts of the language. They're not ideal, but in this case, I think it serves a real purpose. Yeah, it is what yeah. it is. I, I'm, I'm just mostly worrying about the consistency of these things. Like if we get these assumptions and then we get the contracts and if there is something similar, so how consistent mm. they are. So, but maybe I could ask Tima, you know, to write a blog post explaining <laughs> the position. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he'll, he'll do it more um, justice yeah. than me. That's <laughs> the author of that paper. Yeah. <laughs> it would be much more central to the, to the contracts discussion as well. <laughs> but... Um, I thought I had another point, but uh, I assume I've I've forgotten it at this point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, never mind. Let's move on. Anyway, we're already starting to <laughs> to run long, and we've only got through the the bit that I said we'll cut short. So tools news then, because I think this is going to be the big section. But starting <laughs> with Visual Studio 2022, that's now available. Uh, what, what do you want to tell us about this? Yeah, like Microsoft announced the general availability for Visual Studio 2022. And I think it has some big things and some reasonable things uh, as well. So the big thing, the first big thing is probably the 64-bit. So Visual Studio 2022 is, I would say, finally (laughs) 64-bit, which is good because like if you have a huge project, you definitely need more resources for your IDE to work with. And that also means that like the resharper on top of Visual Studio will feel better. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but actually, yeah, so 64-bit makes the uh, the life of those who have the, you know, huge code bases uh, definitely easier. So another thing, big thing, we actually discussed it in July, I guess, uh, in NDR is the hot reload, uh, yeah. which Visual Studio delivered for C Sharp and C++. So uh, it's like available to native C++ applications when running under the debugger. And so that means that you can actually make the changes without, you know, uh, restarting the whole process when you're debugging. So just apply them uh, on the fly, which is great, I think, for the short, short loop of the debugging. So, and yeah, we actually discussed it earlier, so I won't dive uh, deeper. And there are lots of other highlights, which are like smaller but also meaningful and uh, which definitely makes sense like you can now build and debug natively on wsl2 without establishing an ssh connection which is a nice performance improvement i guess it has enhanced support for cmake presets so the cmake presets are actually actively developed by uh, microsoft and kitware i guess that's a nice collaboration so there is like whole community affecting them that's definitely because like that's all kind of open source but uh, microsoft definitely does a great job on uh you know enhancing them and they are like right now working on the proper support so trying to tune their support for the uh, latest changes so they also added the remote debug with ldb from visual studio so uh you can do that right now and they uh added support for leap fuzzer um so under the switch have sanitized further, so which is a nice, you know, pleasant library. And they improved some code analysis and IntelliSense, and especially they uh, mentioned the Unreal Engine code. So they did some work in that direction too, which is nice because for a very, very long time, I haven't seen any activity from Visual Studio in the direction of the Unreal Engine, which is kind of an interesting framework and a big, uh, you know, game dev segment. So uh, we do our job on our side with our tools, and it was I was always wondering if Visual Studio is planning to do more, and seems like they're coming um, to this playground. So which is great. So it's good to see that the tooling evolves for Unreal Engine developers. So it's not just the plain C plus plus tooling, but something better kind of. Yeah. So it seems like a huge release. So uh, wondering what are your thoughts, Phil? Do you find something interesting, or maybe you have some nice additions here? So a lot of it sounded familiar, and I think it's because we've been discussing some of these things yeah, yeah. In, in beta, particularly the, the 64-bit. I know we discussed that last month. And for me, that that's still outstanding, the, the big one, because for so many years we've been asking, why is it only 32-bit? And finally, <laughs> they, they have responded, and I'm sure that's a, a huge undertaking on the inside to, to make that happen. So um, 
I'm not going to uh, say anything against them for taking so long, but uh, it's definitely a big finally on that. <laughs> the other things um, I, I have less sort of an opinion on, it's been a few years now since I was actively developing with Visual Studio, so um, not quite up on the state of the art, but um, great that um, it's still being uh, so seriously worked on as a, as a first-class development environment. That's That's what we need. So I'll leave it there, I think. <laughs> Although what I will say is that, so it was released November the 8th, but the actual release date. Yeah. And on the day, Sonosource had support in, in Sonolint for, for the new Visual Studio out of the box. So I think that's worth mentioning if you do use Sonolint. So version 5 has just been released with, with support for VS 2022. Uh, making full use of that 64-bit address space. Not much more to say about that other than the fact that it also drops support for Visual Studio 2015. And that makes me feel old because the last time I was actively <laughs> developing with Visual Studio, we were just trying to move on to Visual Studio 2015. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah the, these things do uh, have a habit of, of speeding up if you're, if you're not watching. But definitely time to move on. Well, I think 2022 is going to be where everyone wants to be. So, yeah, anything to say about that? Yeah, I just want to mention that it's great that the tools which are uh, kind of working on top of Visual Studio are also, you know, uh, coming uh, to release, you know, like approximately the same days. We're actually also mm. going to release uh, Resharper tools for Visual Studio 2022. I even guess that by the time this episode is live, <laughs> the release is already live as well. Yep. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's just a matter of days. <laughs> yeah. So it depends on how quick are you with the processing of the episode. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's good to see that the tools are there for Visual Studio. So if you're going to move to the Visual Studio 2022, your tools, if you're using them on top, also like uh kind of compatible with the newest version so that that's like you shouldn't wait <laughs> for yeah. them to follow up yeah right well i know there's no big announcements on the JetBrains side so uh, I, I had to scratch around and, and find some some news there but <laughs> maybe <laughs> i'm kidding of course maybe you want to tell us about the uh the new remote development for JetBrains ideas yeah, I think we started last week with all these remote development announcements. Uh, so we started early on Monday and it was a whole week dedicated to this remote development topic. But actually we worked on it for, for a long while. Mm. And that's the reality which is with us for a very long time. It I guess it started before the pandemic when we started realizing that all these remote environments are kind of important. And the pandemic just, you know, pushed it harder on us that we had to think about it. So all these remote functions and distributed architectures and online collaborations are kind of becoming essential uh, for us, for the developers, so we can't work without them. So um, in JetBrains, we've been working on this functionality for a while. And last week, we actually opened the preview and beta versions to the general public. So first of all, for all our IntelliJ-based tools, including C-Line, you know, like IntelliJ ID and PyCharm and others, who announced this new remote development support for our IDs. So, and that's actually like, if you worked with remote development in C-Line, which is there for a few years, it's kind of, which I now called old remote development. It's not that old, <laughs> actually, but it's just different. Uh, the new remote development assumes that you can host your source code, toolchain, and ID backend on a remote server and you can use local theme client based on the IntelliJ platform to, you know, to write, navigate, refactor, uh, debug, and test your project. So do all this stuff. So you have just the local machine with the theme client and you have the uh, remote machine doing all the job for you. So, and the experience is like working with the project in your JetBrains ID locally. So this thing is now in beta. So, and... Um, in case of C-Line, it comes with some specific limitations, which I do mention in the C-Line release blog post. So you can check them out. So I'm not going to list them all in detail. So when we actually keep working on them, so that's the work in progress. So there will be less limitations uh, in the future. So we're going to kind of proceed with excluding them one by one. And like the benefits of the journal stream is kind of obvious, I guess. So first of all, it's the security as you keep your code in a remote server. 
And that's probably some kind of a secured remote machine with some maybe authorized access or something. So you don't need to actually synchronize the code to the local machine, which was the case for the previous remote development flow supported in C-Line. And also like you can use some kind of a weak laptop for your thin clients. So, and you know, all the smartness is happening on the remote machine and that's the, you know, real machine and you just have, you know, something client locally. And you can also prepare the remote environments for your team to, you know, for them to start easy and you can share them. And in some cases, which is not right now the case for C-Line, but we're going to work on that as well. You can even warm them up so that you can start immediately without, you know, waiting for re-indexing and all that stuff. That's also kind of, I guess, supported for IntelliJ IDEA and for some others. So we're still working on it for C-Line because it has a little bit different uh, architecture in this uh, place, but it will also work uh, in some future. So that's about remote development. So you can read through the blog post. There is a thing called uh, ChatBrains Gateway, which helps with, you know, starting all these things. And you can read our, uh, like, my instruction in the release blog post about how to start in C-Line. So, and it generally works. So if you take, like, the CMake project, you take the, uh, you know, some unit tests. We actually checked that catch is working. <laughs> so yeah, um, it will be working. So like debugger, all the things. So there are some things which are still kind of uh, doesn't work as expected. So that's again, still a work in progress. So it's a bit of stage, but it's moving there uh, quite nicely. So you can try it out. And I guess there were lots of requests for C-Line for these kind of remote developments. So uh, yeah. I guess, I hope you can find what you were looking for for a very long time. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, and there is one more thing here, which I just want to uh, touch briefly because that was the part of that announcement, but that's a completely different thing, which I guess many people uh, actually uh, kind of, you know, swapped. <laughs> uh, th there were another tool which we actually started, and uh, that's a new ID and it's called Fleet. And if you ask me what is Fleet, so it's a polyglot lightweight editor first, but you can turn it into a full-featured, uh, like fully functional ID uh, with just a single click on a button. Mm -hmm. And it has a completely, you know, uh, reimagined UI and like you can just check a few screenshots um, in the blog post uh, and on our site. And it actually, why it was kind of combined with all this remote development uh, announcement because it's built on top of this distributed architecture. So we'll build it having this you know, um, remote reality in mind so that the world is not that like uh, it was before, like when you have everything locally. So that was probably the first time in our brains when we started an idea from scratch completely with this remote idea in mind. And also, yes, like we took all our 20 plus years of JetBrains experience to, you know, to bring all the smartness to the tool. Um, sad news is that you can, can't try it right now if you uh, haven't signed in for the preview before, <laughs> because we've got kind of 140,000 requests to join the preview already. So we closed it for now because the team mm -hmm. Uh, would like you know to review all the feedback carefully. So we are right now uh, allowing people to join the preview slowly, going through this you know long list of requests. So we uh, kind of closed the public preview. So you still can follow the announcements at sharebrains.com/fleet or in our Twitter or subscribe for the announcements. There is some form. Um, the good thing is that we're right now working on C++ support for Fleet, and we do hope that uh, the team will be able to deliver some C++ support in Fleet Preview in 2022, so you can expect the C++ there. And it seems that it, uh, you know, uh, might have some audience there. I guess there is something about 10% of those who requested uh, the preview who are using C++, so I do expect some audience uh, but yeah, again, so uh, <laughs> it's a completely different tool. Do not, uh, you know, uh, mix it with the remote development. Remote development is something you can use right now for your ID of choice, be it like C-Line, IntelliJ, or PyCharm, or whatever. And uh, Fleet is something uh, which is for the future. But uh, if you're interested, just, you know, follow the announcements. Uh, I don't know, Phil, uh, did you actually manage to get into the preview? <laughs> uh, or you missed the announcement? <laughs> I, I missed the announcement. Uh, the, the first I heard <laughs> was when I was at a conference last week with uh, some former colleagues, 
<laughs> who mentioned that it had finally been announced because I obviously heard about all of this from the inside when I was still at JetBrains, but I uh, couldn't say anything before. So I'm quite excited that it's all <laughs> been announced now, both both tools. Uh, but I haven't had a chance to to play with it myself yet. Um, I will do that too. if I can't do it soon. I'll, I'll just have to wait. But no, no preferential <laughs> treatment for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, but you can it, try the remote development right now. <laughs> oh yes, yeah, yeah. But if that's the uh, the future of of JetBrains tools, uh, we still have the uh, the, the present, uh, which is even more up to date than than it has been before. So there's a new C line <laughs> as ever. So, going to tell us about twenty twenty one dot three. Yeah, I actually already mentioned that blog post uh, while talking about remote development. So that's exactly the place where you can find the, you know, some C-line instructions and limitations for the remote development. But uh, 2021.3 releases much more than just the remote development. So that's the third major release this year. And uh, like it has actually lots of improvements in C-Line toolchains. So there's lots of updates. So we kind of added the new Docker toolchain so that you can work with Docker easily, not like using the remote toolchain for that, but uh, the special dedicated Docker toolchain. Uh, it actually adds some nice goodies for Windows users. We finally decided to bundle the MinGW on Windows. So just to make the startup easier for those who are just starting with C-Line in, you know, kind of empty environment without any compiler install so that they don't have to install plenty of tools before starting with C-Line. We also bundled Ninja on all the platforms because it seems to us that it's right now one of the most um, popular uh, modern generator in CMake. And we even pushed it for newly opened and newly created projects in C-Line in case they're used locally. So the Ninja generator will be used by default for you. So it's still not the case for remote toolchain because uh, remote environment might miss Ninja. So uh, we want to make sure that your, you know, CMake loading won't fail so that you can actually open the project in C-Line. So we're just pushing it locally where we have the bundled version. Um, also, like, yeah, we added uh, this kind of thing like custom compiler, which is probably the most useful for those who are doing embedded development. Because if you're working with some compiler, which is not natively supported by C-Line, before this release, you actually could do nothing, uh, unfortunately, because uh, you could either, you know, wrap your compiler with something GCC-like and try to pretend that that compiler is GCC for C-Line, but actually it's not quite often. So right now you can just, you know, write a simple uh, YAML file describing your compiler defines and then say, okay, C-Line, like, use my custom compiler. These are the compiler defines. And the good thing is that we actually started the GitHub repository on JetBrains and the JetBrains GitHub account, where we are now collecting the YAML files for the most known embedded compilers. And we, I guess we added something about 10 popular compilers there that you can find quite a lot. And uh, we're very... Uh, open to any pull requests, just read the disclaimer carefully so that you, you don't, you know, uh, abuse any legal agreements with your compiler because quite many of these compilers are proprietary. But anyway, so uh, we are open to accept your request, uh, your pull requests with the YAML files for some known compilers. So let's like uh, make this database bigger so you can use these compilers. And there are also like project examples. So you can actually take the project example from this GitHub Reaper and you can take the compiler description file and you can like play with it in C line. Um yeah and the last probably but not the least thing about the tool chains is that we finally added this ability to source the uh environment with a script so you can just now point the um script in the tool chain settings and this script will be sourced uh while using this tool chain in C line which is quite useful for again quite many embedded compilers who are relying on that. And it seems that you can even use the uh, Intel LVM compiler via this hack. Uh, we tested it, but just uh, for for a short while. But it seems that it generally works. So uh, I really encourage you to try if you're you know keen to try with the Intel LVM, which is the new uh, Intel compiler based on LVM architecture. And as for the editors, I guess we discussed that previously, so we won't go deeper. So uh, there are these type hints for the deduced types. So which are helpful for the C++ types that may not be, you know, immediately obvious, like the uh, types hidden uh, behind the auto specifiers or in structured bindings or in lambda return types. 
So the type hints just show you these types and you immediately know them, which is kind of useful. And there's lots of improvements in the debugger for the like rendering of the data in the debugger. And there are different settings which you can tune for and like customize the way uh, you would like the CLine debugger to render the values in the debugger tool window. So you can find more in the blog post. There are also like updates to space plugin and Rust plugin. So if you're a Rust developer, there are lots of goodies for Rust developers in this release. So just check it out. And like, as usual, the 40 day trial is available and you can give it a try, play with it. And we're open to any feedback as usual. <laughs> um, yeah. And we had some uh, nice videos in the blog post. So um, yeah, Timo did a great job of recording yeah. uh, some videos. So if you'd like to start, for example, with Windows Toolchain or with Docker Toolchains, we have uh, some nice video instructions how to do that. So yeah. Add just a quick video and you will do a quick start, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Tibbs so done a great some... job, job on those videos. <laughs> talking of videos, I see you've been uh, uh, busy trying to invalidate all the, the debugger videos that I did just before I left. <laughs> Twibble and you, you are there. <laughs> and the, uh, the custom compiler support, does that mean I can finally get my Ball and C++ 3.1 disks out again? Uh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> if you can cook a proper YAML file. Uh, so I guess so. Maybe we even have something for world compilers in the repository. I don't know. So the developers, I actually fill in the repository with the YAML files with examples quite quickly. So when I started the blog post, it was something about free compilers in the list. But now I guess it's more than 10. Right. Yeah, I think finding a, a floppy drive reader will, will be the hard part of that one. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so lots of uh, JetBrains news this month. Um, and despite that, we've actually managed to, to get through that in, in a reasonable time. We're coming in under the hour, I think. We do have one more thing to, to discuss. We have a, a little and finally. And uh, this is open to interpretation. You could consider this enough by one error. But because this is episode 12, because we have we've, we actually started in November, 2020 and because we sort of got a little bit later a little bit later a little bit later we're now into december 2021 so i think we can declare that by a birthday uh, we, we've gone a full <laughs> year even if it's only 12 episodes so yeah happy birthday to no diagnostic required yeah so, congratulations we made it <laughs> <laughs> and that's it we're, we're out now no yeah no, you we'll, know we will uh, be back next month like I was discussing with my kid today that I'm gonna uh, kind of record a podcast and he asked like how frequently we're recording. I said like, oh, so we're recording like once per month. So, and he was like calculating for a while. And I said, so that's 12 episodes for a year. Are you serious? <laughs> I was like, yes. Yeah, but you could serialize each episode and uh, do, do a few minutes every day. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe we should start distributing it that way. Well, I think before we get any other crazy ideas, we should probably wrap up and uh, yeah, say thanks for listening. And we will be back with you again uh, next month, which will also be next year for the December edition. <laughs> yeah, see you. See you next time. Bye. Yeah, bye.